Acts chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 1 through 22. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Let me pray that God would apply his blessing to our reading of his word. Father, we come as people who are desperate for your truth, who need you to make yourself known to us. Lord, apart from your gospel, we would not know the truth of this message. We would be lost and left in our sin with no hope at all. Lord, we come as people who feel the weight of sorrow and sadness in this world. Father, we, we pray for continued healing and protection as we live in the midst of a viral outbreak as we have friends and neighbors who suffer, Lord, as we live under a, a cloud of fear and anxiety. Father, we pray for our neighbors as they pursue justice, as we as a church lift our voice to join in the pursuit of racial justice. Lord, have mercy upon us. Your word reminds us that we are dependent upon you for all good things, for, for blessing, for life itself. And so, Lord, we want to, in listening to your word, Show that we are dependent upon you for our spiritual life, for eternal life. So, Father, show us by the power of your Spirit the truth of who Jesus is. Father, we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen. 
you really should know when to quit. We're tempted to think that when we watch someone else try to succeed in difficult circumstances. An athlete who continues to get up after being knocked down again and again. When we see soldiers or military units taking severe casualties, even as this week we've given thanks in remembrance of moments like D-Day. You just need to know when to quit. I mean, that guy on YouTube trying to keep squirrels away from his bird feeder? You really need to know when to quit. And in Acts chapter 4, we might be tempted to, to look at Peter and John and say, hey guys, this is a good time to get out while you can. Because they'd been thrown in jail overnight. They'd been threatened, but if they walk away now, it'll be safe. Because remember, as they stand before this Sanhedrin, as they have been arrested by the temple guard, these are the same men who had arrested Jesus. These are the same men who had condemned Jesus to death and conspired with Rome at his crucifixion. And so Peter and John could walk away now. But why don't they quit? Well, as we look at this passage, we see perhaps the first reason is that God is the only authority. Why don't they quit? Because they're obeying God. It's clear in their answer to the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders gather. When they're told, you can no longer speak in the name of Jesus, what do they say? Look again with me at verses 19 and 20. Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And we'll see when I read the rest of the passage, but, but just look with me at verse 24. This repeated emphasis on the authority and power of God. In, in verse 24, the church begins their prayer. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them. In the Greek, that word is the word from which we get the word despot. One who has absolute power and authority. Now, in English, it has a negative connotation, not so in the original language. It's speaking of God. He has the absolute sovereign authority, and he must be obeyed. And yet there's a, a danger when we hear these words from Peter and John. Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. See, the danger is you and I hear these words and we hear them politically. See, if you've grown up in America, then, then you know the story of our founding. Yes, across the sea they may, have, they may have tea parties, but here when we have a tea party, we dump it in the ocean and we tell you, you cannot tax me without my agreement. See, and so, yes, we could take this passage and apply it politically, thinking through the teaching that Paul gives in, in the end of Romans, that the authorities placed over us have authority that comes only from God. And so, yes, we must obey the legal authorities placed over us, the governing authorities, and yet there are times when we must obey God rather than men. But, but most of you don't need me to push you in that direction. You don't need my political reminders. You've been thinking, hey, governor, don't you tell me what to do. Because, because yes, we can, we can make a political application, and it's right and it's appropriate, but notice that foundationally, fundamentally, the application that Peter and John are making is spiritual. 
you cannot stop me from preaching the gospel. You cannot slow down the advance of God's gospel. See, it's not merely a political statement. It's fundamentally first a theological statement. God is the one in absolute authority. See, and that's the part that you and I, you and I cringe at. Sure, we're fine with saying, hey, ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. I'm my own man. I do my own thing. And yes, in some sense, that's what Peter and John are saying to the religious leaders. You cannot tell us what to do. But you notice more fundamentally, what are they saying? There is one who can tell me what to do. One to whom I owe absolute allegiance and obedience. God Almighty, the sovereign Lord. And so you judge whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. See, we're quick in our own hearts to throw off the the shackles of anyone telling us what to do. You don't need me to encourage you in that. It comes built in. Just spend a little bit of time with a toddler, and you'll be reminded how quickly we learn to say, no, I do it my way. But what the passage is reminding us is that you and I must obey God. We must obey God even when the world looks at us and says, wait, what? You believe that? You're going to live by antiquated systems of morality? You're going you're gonna to live by, by an ancient book that feels like fables and fairy tales? So what Peter and John are saying here is that they will obey God even in the face of opposition, even in the face of persecution, It doesn't matter what you threaten us with. We must obey God. The gospel must be preached. See, we're quick to throw off oppression wherever we find it, but are we quick to obey God himself? Even to the point of persecution? And it's all the more remarkable when you think about who it is that says this. It's Peter, who says, I must be identified with Jesus. I must declare his name. Because Peter, when confronted previously with an identification with Jesus, said, no, 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 not me. And Luke even helps us see the connection. Because in Peter's sermon, back in chapter 3, you can look there in verses 13 and 14, Peter talks about, the leaders of God's people disowning Jesus. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is back in chapter 3, verse 13, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though you had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one. And that's the very same word in the original language, translated translating Peter's speech into Greek. Luke uses that same word. It's used by each of the gospel writers to describe Peter's actions when he disowned Jesus. Flipping your Bibles with me back to Luke chapter 22. Remember, Luke and Acts come to us in two volumes. The first is the, un, is the beginning of the story of Jesus. All that he did and said here on earth, his resurrection from the dead. Acts is volume two. It's all that Jesus continued to say and do through his church. And so back in Luke 22, 
we find Jesus arrested in the garden by this same temple guard that has arrested Peter and John. We know that Jesus will be taken to the Sanhedrin. And so we're told then that Peter is the one who disowns Jesus. Luke 22, verse 54. Seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. He disowned Jesus. It's the same word that Luke uses for us in the speech of Peter in Acts 3. Peter denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. See, Peter is only here because he's obeying God in Acts chapter 4. Left to his own strength, we would have a man who was willing to disown Jesus to a servant girl, one whom the society would say is at the, the lowest rung, and yet Peter is afraid of her. And what is it that's taken place in the intervening chapters between, Acts 20, between Luke 22 and Acts 4? We don't have to have spent much time in church to know the story. It's the resurrection of Jesus. And actually, you only needed to be paying attention to what I was reading today. For it is the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that he was dead but has been brought back to life, and a new and transformed physical resurrected body that is at the center point of the argument in Acts 4. G Peter has put his hope in the resurrection, but it's the leaders of the people, the Sanhedrin, the temple guard, the Sadducees, that that's the reason that they come and arrest Peter and John. Look again at verse 2. We're now, we've flipped our Bibles back to Acts chapter 4, verse 2. The leaders were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And when Peter has opportunity to defend himself, that's what he points to in verse 10. You and all the people of Israel, you need to know this. Verse 10, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And so why don't Peter and John quit? Because God is the only authority and they must obey him. But, but notice also what this passage says. Jesus is the only Savior. Why do Peter and John not quit? Why don't they give up at this point? It's because they have found in him alone salvation. Peter, in standing before the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin, he, he turns the tables on them. They're asking him to give a defense, but, but he says, oh, no, no, this is a time to preach. This is a time for you to hear the gospel message. And so his, his mini-sermon there in verses 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 
reaches the crescendo of verse 12. That verse which rightly gets put on posters, a verse that is, deserves to be memorized by you this week. The, the crescendo that Jesus alone is our Savior. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. See, Peter and John can't be kept quiet because they know the resurrection of Jesus. They know him as their only Savior, their rescuer. And yet, and yet we want to step back from this kind of truth. Even if you've been a Christian for a long time, you think, well, I mean, that sounds a little bit arrogant. I mean, I've taken a world religions course, and to say that, that Jesus is the only way, to say that Christianity is the only way, it sounds rather exclusive. It sounds arrogant. It sounds boastful. And, and yes, it is the clear central teaching of Christianity that there is no other way of salvation except through Jesus Christ. But remember first with me that all of us make exclusive claims. It's not merely Christians who make this claim, although because it's central to what we believe, we might have to repeat it frequently. But every one of us makes this kind of exclusive claim. Every religious system, every worldview, even the person who says nobody should ever make exclusive claims is himself, in saying that, making an exclusive claim. A worldview that wants to accept all truth as equally valid crumbles under its own weight. Because in saying to claim exclusive truth, it for itself claims exclusive truth truth. But more than that, more than that, I think too often we, we view salvation like we view a, a menu at a restaurant. Now, if you visit a restaurant now, you might not get a physical menu. But remember, there were times in your life when you went, and you, you would think, well, you know, is today a day I should eat a salad and follow my doctor's instructions, or, or do I want the burger? And we kind of decide, well, I'd like this rather than this, or I'm kind of in the mood for this, or, or you've been sitting with people where somebody else orders something, and you think, ooh, that sounds good, and you change your order. And so we want salvation, we want religion to be like that. that, that we can just pick whatever path we want. And so we view the claim of Christianity that there is only one way, like going to a restaurant where, they, where every time you ask to order something, can I have that? No, we don't have that today. Can I have this? No, we don't have that today. And you finally just get fed up. Well, fine, what do you have? And they give you just one option. You would think, I don't think we're coming back here. But remember, that's not what salvation is. It's not that Christianity has taken all of these possible paths of salvation and, and narrowed it down to one. It's, it's that what Peter and John are saying, what the Scriptures tell us repeatedly is, apart from Jesus Christ, there is no salvation at all. There is no possibility of salvation for you apart from Jesus Christ. And so like a, a, a wanderer in the desert who stumbles upon an oasis, when they bring you water and food, you don't ask for a menu and say, well, could I have something else? As someone who is desperate for your very life, you say, thank God that there is this before me now. And so yes, Christianity is exclusive, but it's also radically generous. Because what, is, what are Peter and John saying? You can't stop us from saying this. We have to share it with everyone. 
That's the point of verses 19 and 20. Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We cannot stop talking about the resurrection. We cannot stop talking about salvation in Jesus' name. It must go to everyone everywhere for this exclusive gospel, that their salvation only in one way is given to everyone everywhere. And so why won't Peter and John quit? Because God is the only authority. Because Jesus is the only Savior. But more than that, we see in this passage because the Holy Spirit is their only power. See, what would take a man who cowered in fear before a servant girl in the darkness of night around a fire on the night of Jesus' arrest? What would transform him to be one who would stand now before the religious leaders, the very same people who condemned Jesus? What would make him bold? We don't have to guess. The passage tells us explicitly. Look at verse 8. When asked in verse 7, by what power or what name did you do this? Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Peter, inspired by God, empowered by God, now speaks with boldness. He views this not as a threat, that these are the very people who arrested Jesus. These are the very people who condemned Jesus to die. He views this now as an opportunity. When am I going to have this group of leaders, this assemblage of great power, all of the high priests in succession sitting before me to hear the gospel? I have to share it with them. It's the power of God's Holy Spirit. And then I'm going to continue reading this passage beginning at verse 23. And what I want you to notice as I read is how the power given to Peter, one man, the, the, the one apostle standing to defend the, the Christian truth, how this power from the Holy Spirit now goes from one to all. From one apostle given now to the whole church. Follow as I read beginning at verse 23 of Acts 4. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot invade? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Do you see the power for the church is the power of God's Holy Spirit enabling them to be bold? And, and in this passage, it, he is the same spirit who spoke through the prophet David when he wrote in Psalm 2 that, that no matter what powers are arrayed against the Lord, all the nations of the earth could raise their armies and it will not be enough to unseat the sovereign Lord. His power cannot be stopped. 
and His power is at work through His church, through the Holy Spirit. Peter made bold, the church made bold by the work of Jesus Christ, through the power of God's Spirit, so that we reach the end of this passage and we feel the physical movement of the room that they're in, the holy, overwhelming power of God shaking the very place where they met. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 31 tells us, and spoke the word of God boldly. See, we can rejoice in the claim that Jesus is the only Savior because we have humbled ourselves before the power of Almighty God so that in the boldness given to us by God's Spirit, we can announce this good news. We have the privilege of sharing this gospel message. Back in September 2016, high school teacher Ben Ellis was in his final days on his deathbed with esophageal cancer. And a video was taken of his students, of all 400 students from his school, Christ Presbyterian Academy in Nashville. The students and staff loaded buses and came and sang songs and hymns of praise outside their beloved teacher's window. And with a voice that was very weak, he joined in singing praises with them. Now, the video went viral when it was shared by country music superstar Tim McGraw. 31 million people saw that video. The story then picked up in the local news stations, picked up by national news outlets, Good Morning America, interviewing those that were involved. Hearing the hope of the resurrection, even in the face of suffering and death. Now, shortly before the viral hymn sing, Ben, this teacher, had written in his journal, he had asked God for a few more days because he wanted the opportunity to show the love of Jesus through his suffering. As his story was repeated across the nation, he shared in his online Caring Bridge journal, he said, remember my prayer request for a few more days? God has blown the doors off of this prayer request. This is far beyond our wildest, biggest dreams. I have never felt so weak, but God is strong in me. More days, more glory to him, more people seeing Jesus, more people coming to know Jesus. What an amazing answer to prayer. He lived less than two weeks. But in those few days, he had the opportunity to share this gospel message. In our weakness, in the face of suffering, with threatened persecutions, we can be bold because God is our ultimate authority. Jesus is our only Savior, and we are empowered by the Spirit of God. And so we submit, we believe, and we rely on the work of our God. We rejoice in our gospel hope. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. 
Let me pray that God would apply his word to our hearts. Father in heaven, we give you praise for the glory of your gospel. Lord, help us to submit ourselves to your glorious authority. Father, let us find our hope in Jesus Christ alone. And Lord, make us bold in announcing this good news, not merely asserting our right to speak, but asserting the glory of the gospel, the hope of the resurrection, the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, we come asking you to work in us by the power of the Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.